Goedemiddag allemaal. There you go. After eight years, that's the only Dutch I have, but it's not too bad, right? Not too bad. Welcome. Welcome to the Moonshots podcast. How is Amsterdam this morning, this afternoon? See, you, you think I've already been drinking a few beers. I don't even know if it's morning or afternoon. Welcome. Are you feeling good? Are we ready to do some thinking, some investigating? Are we ready to expand our minds? Or do we just want to drink the beer? Also. Also. Okay. Well, uh, a very fine welcome to all of you to uh, episode 14 of the Moonshots podcast. And as usual, I am joined by the man with a plan, usually behind the camera, But today, he's in front of the camera. Would you all give it up for Mr. Chad Owen? Hello, Amsterdam. So if any of you got to see our uh, preview broadcast yesterday, I had a great moment with Chad, and I asked him if he'd been to a cafe in Amsterdam. To which he answered, yes, I had a very nice breakfast at uh, the cafe. But I said, did you go to one of the real... Amsterdam brown cafes and he had no idea what happens in a brown dark cafe in Amsterdam so he needs you he needs your education your advice on how to find the very best of Amsterdam and maybe not only some of the the shiny tourist spots but maybe some of the more earthier Real. Off the beaten path. Off the beaten path, yeah. as they say. So um, we, we have a lot to do here on the show uh, today, uh, Chad. Um, we've got some amazing guests that we're going to talk about in a second. We have so much to share, but I think we've got to do a few shout-outs. Um, first, for a disclaimer, uh, this is our first video uh, live broadcast. So when we thought to ourselves, let's go live, let's go live and do it in video as well. So we are welcoming upon us all of the variables that you get when you do a live broadcast for the first time. Now, you might be thinking, uh, if this is a live video broadcast, where is the camera? In fact, the camera is right here in front of us. And it's doing all sorts of groovy technology, right, Chad? It's like zooming in on us. Everyone gets quite a high-tech production, right? Yeah, I'm actually controlling them from my phone right here. It's uh, quite a neat little app. We've got a nice two-shot here. Going to a wide shot and uh, a close-up on you right now, Mike. Oh, <laughs> there you go. So um, first of all, we've got to do some shout-outs. So I'm looking, where's Tiago in the audience? Um, Tiago, who, who's watching uh, us live from Brazil? My wife, Priscilla. The wife <laughs> is in Brazil, so we're sending our big shout-out to Brazil. Um, I also know that my friends and colleagues in Bucharest were up on a big widescreen in the office and there's like 200 engineers in Bucharest right now. They've put the laptops down and they're cheering for us here in Amsterdam. So give it up for Bucharest in Brazil. I think I have some uh, fellow New Yorkers also. It's about 9 a.m. They're just now waking up after their food comas from Thanksgiving or their uh, trampling over people at Walmart for Black Friday, one, one of the or two. Or doing all at the same time. Or doing time. all of it, yeah, exactly. So um, we are all uh, quite fancy and high tech uh, this afternoon. We've got live stream with people coming in and chatting with us. Um, but I should come to my next disclaimer, and that is this is not a, a relax kind of a session for the next 
one and a half hours. So I think we need to warn this audience that they've actually got some work to do. Yeah, I'm coming out with the mic a little bit later and asking you guys, I'm asking you questions, so uh, be prepared. Hear that sound? Hear that sound? That's the, uh-oh, what's he going to do? <laughs> and yes, he is from Brooklyn, so you might be expecting him to be kicking the Adidas and dropping some rhymes, but actually what he'll be doing with his mic is he's going to be coming to you, our audience. He's going to be looking online, reading questions from our audience, and here's the thing. We're going to have these great entrepreneurs, these great innovators on stage with us, and Chad and I, we really get the easy job. We, we can ask a few questions, uh, try and learn as much as we can from these four fine gentlemen, but we're going to ask you, the audience, to wrap it all up and tell us what we have learned from them. So rather than us doing the postmortem, it will be you, the audience, that's going to help us decode all their secrets to success. So you better make sure those glasses are full uh, because you're going to have work to do. Are you guys up for some insights and tough questions? Absolutely. Oh, oh, Chad. I don't think they what are. What just happened? Yeah. We had such good energy at the start. What's, what's the audience online doing? Oh, they're all gone. Yeah, yeah, they're all gone. <laughs> do you think we could get them all back? You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, guys, are you ready to tune in and learn from some masters of innovation here in Amsterdam? Yeah! All right. Okay. So that brings us to our first guest. Uh, this is someone who's really, it's really special for me to invite on stage um, because he protected all of you good Dutch citizens from receiving badly formatted emails from me when I was working in this advertising agency, sending out creative messages to the world. It was his technology that we used some 15, 16 years ago when I worked at McCann Ericsson. So I'm really, really proud uh, and really very happy to introduce you someone who has not only founded a lot of companies, he's not only sold companies, but he now invests in companies. So I am very excited to welcome to the stage, Mr. Johan van Mill. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And goeiemiddag, uh, as they would say. Goeiemiddag. Very good. Now, before we get into the serious innovation and entrepreneurial questions. Well, Johan was actually about to recommend a brown cafe to me. So right oh, yeah. before we got Do on stage. So yeah, what, what's your recommendation? I think where you should go is uh, to a cafe called In den Apien in Dutch. Oh, no. So In the Ape. It seems like a few people okay. know that one in the audience. Yes. We have gone no. there already. The show's only been going half an this hour. This man is having a big confession that he's laughing, so yes. that's good. But, but what I mean is uh, in an app, is one of the oldest bars in, in Amsterdam. It's really funny because that's a big uh, 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 dierentuin, sorry, uh, in a zoo in Amsterdam, and which was built especially from apes coming from sea sailors, which arrived in Amsterdam, and when they came to a bar, they could sleep, and they were paying with their apes, which they, which they brought from abroad. They would pay with monkeys. They paid with monkeys. And with the monkeys, they started the zoo. And it's a really beautiful story. It's one of the oldest uh, bars. It's at the Zeedijk, near the Central Station. You should go there, Chad, really. You would All love right. it. Okay, that, that one's for the list. Now, uh, we have another very important announcement. As you all know, and uh, we, we have a global audience, um, I'm, I'm going to see if Chad can see if we have any Australian uh, viewers who are definitely either 
a few birches in, as they would say, or uh, already onto the espressos. It's like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, we couldn't pick a time zone to make everybody happy. Um, but we do have this global audience and we thought it only appropriate that we introduce the world to the very sophisticated culinary delights of the Netherlands. So, Johan, um, in front of you, mm -hmm. you might see a few uh, food items that are familiar. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, for our global audience, and for those of you here uh, in Amsterdam who can't see what we have in front of us, we have the speculas, okay? Now, the speculas is sort of a spicy, biscuity, Mm -hmm. And would you say that's a kind of only a Christmas thing, Johan, or is that kind of something no, you can have all year my, round? My, my, kids, my kids eat it all year round. All so year it's round, really okay. A <laughs> okay, so this is kind of a spicy, fun one. Mm -hmm. We have over here uh, the paper noten. Mm -hmm. Now, that one's definitely a Christmas one. Okay? Yeah. yeah, Santa Claus. Santa Claus, Santa Claus, yeah. Santa Claus yeah. so it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have um, over here, this one is called the Thai Thai. Yeah, Thai Thai. Yeah. Now, this is like a... <laughs> Uh, like a chewy, doughy kind of a, an experience, okay? Yeah. So here we've got our three uh, highly sophisticated Dutch delicacies, okay? Yeah. Known worldwide. Dropjes. But then we have yeah. probably a national favorite, huh? Sure. The dropje. Dropje. <laughs> Tell us, what is the dropje? Yeah, dropje is very, it's a, you, you can have it in different flavors, you know? You can have That's it in right, sweet yes. and salt. You can have it in hard and soft form. I love it. I always have a bag in my car eating it. That, would, you, would you say in Dutch, <laughs> jij bent een echte Nederlander? Ik ben een echte verslaafde. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Now, but the big question is sweet, sweet or salty? With your... Uh, sweet. Sweet. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, I okay. prefer sweet. Sweet and soft. That's okay. Really, yeah. So time. so each of our guests are going to uh, be invited to nominate mm -hmm. their favorite Dutch treat. But you get to go first. So you have a, have a whole selection uh, mm -hmm. here. Uh, tell us, Johan, if you have to, to pick one of your favorites here. I think you've given us the clue. What should I try first? Yeah, what, what should Chad try first? Dropius. Dropius. All right, dropius yeah. it is. <laughs> okay, here we go. So Chad's going his, his first dropius. <laughs> Salty, do you get salty? Licorice. Yeah, licorice it is. Um, now let's just have a look at the audience. Um, let's see by a show of hands, who else here, all these good Dutchmen and Dutch ladies, who else here would put the dropje out of the four, who puts the dropje as their favorite Dutch treat? Let's have a look. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and sweet or uh, salty? What do we Ooh. That's about one-fifth of the audience. Yeah, yeah. So there's still a good chance for the cookies, actually. Yeah. Okay. So we have the dropje. So stay tuned, uh, particularly for our global listeners. Uh, stay tuned because we'll be not only introducing dropjes, cookies, and all sorts of good things. We've got lots of great entrepreneurs and innovators that we're going to be interviewing. Um, but I think it's about time we, uh, we put some questions towards Johan. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Chad's just nodding because he's in <laughs> drop your heaven. I'm busy eating the drop your <laughs> Drop your heaven? Okay. Um, okay, so the first question that we have for you, Johan, mm -hmm. is you've built companies mm -hmm. and now you're investing in other people's companies. Mm -hmm. um, tell us how you have had to shift and how you've had to grow from being that hardworking uh, entrepreneur trying to make a vision come about mm -hmm. And how have you been able to uh, transition now into helping others build their companies? Yeah, good question. I uh, started an entrepreneur, become an entrepreneur already when I was a student. So I built uh, a few companies also as a student and also afterwards. And then I learned, you know, learned that having a company is great. 
and uh, but uh, managing people is not so great. And uh, so I'm very good at you know thinking about ideas, creating companies, building yeah. companies. You know when there are 10, 20 people max. But oh. afterwards, it's yeah, it became a pain for me really, to be honest with you. So I I was always in the problem of starting a company, working my butt off to get it successful. But then I fall into the I fell into the fall of that the company was too big, so I couldn't manage it my, myself. So I think uh, 10 years ago, I realized, you know, I have to do something, I have to switch my career more or less. So then I found some friends uh, who also had that same problem more or less and also had a little bit of money. And we said, well, let's put that money in one basket and let's invest in other companies and let's learn how it works. And that was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, there were not so many VCs in the Netherlands as there were, for example, in the US. So we were, I think there were 10 roughly. And we did just by, by, by gut feel. And we, so we talked to different companies, put some th sometimes our money in, sometimes we didn't. And we did three investments with the guys. And it turned out pretty successful. We, we sold two to listed companies. So that means in VC land for the audience that you're doing pretty good. <laughs> and one uh, was bought back uh, to the team, and that means in VC land, that's not very good. So we had, a, we had a pretty good return, and then we founded a new fund and a new fund. And then I think two and a half years ago, when I was uh, selling my last company, I was thinking, what shall I do with my life? Shall I start my 12th company? Or shall hey, I... Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Are, you, are you joking on the, the number 12, or are you for real? That's for real, yeah. yeah. 12, 12. companies. Yeah. Okay, we're going to yeah. come back to that. Okay, okay, so you're at the last one. The yeah, last one, yeah. Okay, you've sold it off and yeah. you went through a transition, obviously. And then I went through a transition because I, uh, I realized that, that, you know, that the problem I was falling into every time, you know, starting a company, becoming too big, etc., that I had to, to really shift that, that's one, and that I liked being, helping other companies, coaching people, thinking about new ideas, etc. And then at that time... Uh, I was moving out of Amsterdam because we uh, we live pretty nearby each mm -hmm. other, and then I moved outside Amsterdam into a natural uh, forest area, so really outside. And I realized, you know, I don't want to travel all into the city again at 9 a.m. in the traffic, etc. Yeah, yeah. And I want to spend also more time with my kids. So I, s I was looking for a new way of, yes. you know, getting direction. Uh, sorry, helping me in life and and finding new ways to 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 work on. And then I, uh, uh, two and a half years, so I full-time made the switch from being an entrepreneur to being an investor. And since I'm, yeah, since that I'm doing it, and it's great. I think it's very good. What I like in my job is you meet all kinds of people. Yeah. You meet entrepreneurs. It's a, it gives a lot of energy. It's great to, to have them on the table and discuss their issues. And the hardest part for me is as an entrepreneur, you know, I always see where it goes well and what needs to be changed. And then, you know, the big... The big gap for me is that I step in and fix the problems myself. So that's one of the issues I'm co constantly working on. Okay, okay. Yeah. So there, there I, I have lots of questions. Yeah, for yeah, you. yeah. Okay, you go, you go first. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I think for me, uh, what's your biggest takeaway from being an entrepreneur having founded 11 companies? Mm -hmm. And how does that give you a new perspective to then look at a company and decide if it's worthy of investment or advisorship? Um, and what are you taking from your entrepreneurship and applying it to your investing? Yeah, uh, I think what the most important thing is when you are an entrepreneur is having, you know, a complete 1000% focus on what you're doing and work your day, work day and night to realize that company. 
I think if you don't do that, you will not succeed. And that was, you know, when I started my first company roughly 25 years ago. I think it's the same now. And it's even harder because the competition, especially, you know, with the tech, and it's easy to build a company. You don't need an office. You have WeWork. You don't need a uh, car. You have, uh, you know, the, uh, the Uber, the car to go, etc. So it's very easy to start a company. But I think so it's really hard, it's really hard to have a successful company. And then it's really important that you, that you work hard, but also work smart. So I think that's that's what I take as entrepreneur. And sorry, your second question, Chet, was well, really I'm asking like I don't know if there's any Dutch entrepreneurs here. Like, what should they be doing to interest someone like you to then become a, you know an advisor or an investor in their company? Yeah, and what is it to build on that? When now you're looking, if you imagine there was all these pers prospective startups in front of you. Mm -hmm. Take us into your mind, like, what are you actually looking for? Like, you must have some sort of checklist. Yeah, we, we do have a checklist. We, we, we call it internally, we call it the T-score. And every company we talk to and every guy I rent to, if, if, if it's at a funeral, because sometimes people really pitch at a funeral. Hang on, you've been pitched yeah, at a funeral? Yeah, that's a, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long and sad story by the sound of it. And we use more or less a model that we, 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 we distracted from the, from the 15 companies we invested in already. Okay. And I think we saw roughly, I think, 2,000 business plans and entrepreneurs, etc. And what we are looking for is... And so uh, what we call the T-score, and it's derived from one, how, what is the team like, mm -hmm. the team, two is what is the traction, and three is what's the thesis of the company. So what's really the problem they're solving, what's the market nice. they are taking, yeah. how scalable it is. Yeah. So we constantly look at these three when we evaluate an opportunity or, or, or yeah, in whatever phase it is, and then we, we derive from that what we're going to do with that company. So it's a really structured way of working, and otherwise I think that's the smart part, you know, it's working hard, but it's also working smart. I mean, if we don't do that, we get, you know, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of business plans coming, mm -hmm. se uh, being sent in, and uh, we get, uh, get approached a lot of times. It's very good to, 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 to be very specific in the time what you spend on each company. Because if mm. you don't do that as an investor, yeah, yeah, I mean, time is our biggest uh, uh, asset that we have. Yeah, and you can't buy time. You can't buy time, yeah. still. Yeah. yeah, okay. So I, I want to go back. Um, I know what's really interesting uh, for the audience here and the audience listening live online is there's a lot of people who are trying to make a breakthrough uh, professionally, like with a business idea, with a product, but it's often mirrored by a personal breakthrough at the mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. I, wanted, I want you to take us back to this big transition. Obviously, you said, I'm out of the city, I'm heading to the forest, yeah. okay? Um, how did you make this transition? How did you invite this change into your life? Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give to anyone who's trying to go through that? Imagine that someone might in fact be uh, working at a company but working on their own idea and they're trying to like, uh, they've got a dream of a startup or they just want to see something great come about in the world. How did you invite this change? Like, Take us through what you actually did. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, the best way perhaps is, is compare it to the different stages that you have as a startup. You know, you have the idea phase, mm -hmm. you have the MVP phase, the, the uh, product market fit phase, and the, and the scaling phase. And, uh, you know, when I moved uh, uh, out of the city, perhaps that's a good example because it's in the, more in the private level instead mm -hmm. of, you know, as a business, then uh, I had the idea of moving outside. My girlfriend, she was stick to the, she, she wanted to play, uh, so to stay in the city, and I really wanted to move outside. So we had discussions, years, years about moving out of the city, but she wouldn't do it. And at a certain moment, I realized, you know, being an investor and working with those four stages, I realized I had to build an MVP for this situation. 
So I said to my wife at that time, my girlfriend, sorry, I said to her, well, perhaps we should try to uh, lift. Uh, we started a project called Proofwonen. Okay. So we started to rent out, to rent via Airbnb houses outside Amsterdam, you know, just a week to feel how it was living somewhere. So we rented a house everywhere around Amsterdam, you know, half an hour maximum away from Amsterdam. So we started living, me, my wife, and also our two kids and how it was, you know, living there. So, so, we, so you, you, if I just understand that, uh, rather than just kind of being in a, in a somewhat abstracted uh, yeah. life, yeah. thinking about some big move, which would feel very dramatic if you've lived in, in the city all your life and then, you, and then you're going to make this radical change. So you kind of did a test and learn. Let's yeah. Yeah. create an MVP and see if anyone wants it. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, uh, we did it, I think, uh, seven or eight times. So we did it at, um, uh, at, at great location, but also at a very boring location. So we learned what we want and mm -hmm. we, we, we adapted our view also on that. And then at a certain time we agreed on, you know, moving uh, out of the out of town, and then we bought a house somewhere, and we started living somewhere. So I think if you uh, use that also for your personal life, and if you have an idea as an entrepreneur, because I meet a lot of people who have an idea and cannot set, cannot make the real decision about yeah. starting the company, it's just one. I think the first phase is create an MVP, test how it works. So mm. you know, spend one day of your work, sorry, one day of the week or build a small thing, or test a campaign, or Facebook, and see how people react. Just create an MVP, create a test for yourself, and get some proof, and get some value, uh, some validation from yourself, but also from the market how it works. And then right. the step doing that is pretty easy. And I see, what I see a lot is that people hang in the face, more or less, about thinking about the idea, and, 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 and having that wish, but not doing the real step. Okay, so just to unpack that a little bit, that sounds to me like, once you actually started testing the idea, much like you might do even in a startup, that actually made the transition um, much easier. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that was also a source of the commitment from your better half? Once you had done some testing and learning, it wasn't so much a, a sell anymore. Yeah, you had really done it and so the evidence was perhaps clear. You buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's a big change that you've invited. You've gone from building – you saw on the horizon your 12th company. Well, I've known you a long time, but I didn't realize it was that many companies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, one thing I'm actually really interested in, I have one company that I'm still operating. How in the world did you find the time to f found so many companies? And um, I'm, I'm curious just kind of your day-to-day -day process for thinking about both the higher level of mm – -hmm. Uh, how the company is doing, but then I, your brain is probably already on to the next idea, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. how are you kind of uh, taking care of what's happening now and then also planning for your future ventures at, at that time? Yeah, that, that, that's that's a big risk for me, of course, because I'm always planning ahead. And what I do is, you know, if I have an idea, like, you know, when we started Peak Capital and also now our next fund, I have a visualization of how it becomes and then I worked towards that visualization and I work, you know, then day and night in realizing. And that's that's the way I do it. And that's also my, my big pit, pitfall, of course, that I have to step back sometimes and realize what's happening, etc. So I think that's that's one. And the second one is, I think, what's very important is that you found, I always find great people to work with because I can never have 12 companies on my own. So I always have great partners who I work with and uh, uh, to cooperate with. Because, you know, for example, when we invest, we never invest, for example, in single founder companies. Right. Because having a company, especially these days, requires so much skills that you, you cannot do that on your own. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think One thing we found in unpacking 
uh, all the great entrepreneurs on the Moonshots podcast is they all build uh, teams around them to execute their ideas, whether it's someone like Jeff Bezos who builds a team for one singular product vision like Amazon or someone like Elon Musk that builds multiple teams for multiple companies, yeah. SpaceX and Tesla, the boring company, et cetera. Yeah. 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 And, and what I mean is building a team, that's one, but also getting a, a co-founder, so on the same level as you both are, uh, uh, to work with you. And then, you know, if you have a co-founder, you don't give him, for example, 5% of the shares because that's not a co-founder. No. But then you do, when you are three guys and you have 33%, mm. and if that guy is not good enough, then you have to replace him. Mm. Pretty easy. So also make that tough decisions in that phase. That's crucial, I think. Getting people to put skin in the game together. Yeah. So let's, let's get into a little bit of how you coach and mentor others. Mm-hmm. That must be a huge part of your day because you tell us a little bit about the portfolio, how big is it, and, and give us a sense of the sort of engagement you've got with founders right now. Yeah, yeah good question. We, we invest money but also you know, our own uh, you know, experience and, and we help these companies on a day-to-day business. So we invested currently in, we, we invested in 15 companies. We sold three we're currently closing a deal, and uh, uh, so we have a lot of companies still to manage. Yeah. Uh, what we do is uh, we manage those companies actively. So that means, you know, when we invest in a company, we make a plan roughly for the three months ahead because that's the most important period when we put money in our money in that it grows yeah. faster than it did before. So we have to hire people, etc. So then we are uh, involved, you know, on the. I think we speak to these founders, you know, once or two two times a week. We meet them, mm-hmm. so really very intensive. And after three months, then then it will become less. And then it's you know we go to a weekly meeting or bi-weekly, etc. So we are very active with the founders, and it means for my role that I'm very active as a as yeah. a as a as a yeah more or less a co-founder with the companies. So I have calls and meetings and all day about new funding rounds, potential buyers. Uh, the, the CMO they want to hire, you know, everything we we help them and also with the network that we have and also the things, of course, that we learned ourselves as entrepreneurs. So if you were to abstract across those 15 companies, mm-hmm. what is the toughest thing your founders in the portfolio, what's the toughest thing that they have? They're all relatively early stage companies. Mm-hmm. Um What's the thing that they struggle with uh, the most? And tell us a little bit about how what you, what advice you have for them to solve that. I think I think the biggest struggle is that they have, especially the, the companies we invest in, is that they are most of the time they are so-called bootstrapped companies, mm-hmm. so they funded them by themselves. Mm-hmm. And then running a company is more or less running your cash flow, yeah. Because the, the 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 speed that your company grows is derived from the cash that you have. And when we put in money, and that's roughly uh, half a million until one and a half million, then we have to speed up the process. Mm. And change that thinking with that founder, I think that's the, the, the hardest part in our job. So Do, that, Is that because you feel that the stakes got a lot bigger, the, the, the risks feel much bigger? Is that what the... No, they, 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 uh, that's one, but I think the most important one is that they have to uh, work a different way than they did before. So okay. if they hire a guy, then normally they would really check the salary they have to, to, to get the, the cheapest guy which is on the market. Yeah. And when we get on board, we want the best guy on the market. Uh-huh. And if we have to pay him twice as much, then we are willing to do that because we know from our own experience that he speeds the process of 10X. success 10x. Yeah. So it's a good investment. Yeah. And that thinking, that change in thinking, I think that's the most... It's the hardest part in our in, in our job, but that's that's what we discuss a lot to, with. To uh, go from someone that's been bootstrapping the whole right. time to now I actually have resources. Yeah. How uh, so? Just in a follow up to that, 
-hmm. How do you actually help them have a like a sort of a huge paradigm shift? Because that's I, I can imagine if you're incredibly proud and you've built it, you've bootstrapped your way there, and then all of a sudden some guys walking in and say, "Spend the money, go for it, real quick." And I mean, this is sort of a, a very disruptive to yourself and to mm -hmm. all the sort of Agree. playbooks that you have. What do you? How do you create this change for them? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's building a relation. That's one. So when we invest in a company, normally it takes from the first meeting that we have to closing a deal, it takes four to six months. And in the four to six months, we really get to know the guys that we invest in. And we meet them, we meet even their wives. So we have dinner at their homes with their, kinder, with, with their kids, you know, nice. giving them a, a lot of drinks so that we see them in a human behavior, at their home behavior. But really get, get to on, know them. Hang on, So we should tell anyone, whenever you ask yeah. to have dinner at someone's house, yeah. the good news, he's thinking about investing. The bad news, he's going to get you really drunk. <laughs> Is it, I just want to make they, sure. They get drunk. Okay, they get drunk. <laughs> oh, now you should really be worried. Yeah. So that, I think that's very important. So, so build, build a relationship. And during that phase, during the, you know, the four to six months. But, what do you, but Johan, what do you, how do you get him going from A to B? Like how do you shift them along? You've yeah. got the relationship, so yeah. they're now maybe a little bit open to this. Yeah. But what is the device that you use to help them get the, ah, we should hire that top guy? I think that's in talks, that's in analyzing the data, that's looking at the company, helping them during the investment phase also. So mm -hmm. before we invest, also helping them, getting them to learn other people, to learn from their mistakes, etc. Yeah. So it's really talking, showing things, learning things, giving them insight in their own business because we analyze the data that they have in their company often better than they do themselves. Mm -hmm. So that brings us also the, the, the realization that it's it has a lot of opportunity, but yeah. they have to really speed up because the competition is growing, for example, much faster as they are. Yeah, yeah. So I think giving them the insights, and first is building the relation, and the third one is, you know, a plan how to execute it. Okay. And that's, a, you know, the three-month plan that we work with companies on when we invest. Okay. And then mm. really execute that plan. So you essentially go from invest, there's a couple of key milestones, you invest, yeah. uh, or does the dinner at their house with the kids and the wine, does that happen before the investment? I think that does. Always. Always before the investment. Okay. Then, then you have the, the aha moment, mm -hmm. and then you try and shift them into this highly accelerated um, situation where their whole tempo, the whole rhythm of the business is transformed. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I want to. I want to get him over for dinner just so I can yeah, see exactly. what this transformation I'll, looks I'll like. I'll invite him to the. I get you drunk. The, <laughs> yeah. Come to Sydney, okay? I'll invite him to the Brown Cafe. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go with the apes. With the apes. Um, okay. So we're about to um, go uh, wandering into the audience for some uh, post-game analysis. So a bit of a warning here to the audience uh, with us in Amsterdam. Uh, we're going to need your help to decode what we just learned from Johan. And um, I want to take this moment to, to uh, thank you uh, for inviting us into this world. I feel like there's a whole world to talk about what happens after the three-month acceleration. Um, and so maybe in the next time we come here, we can talk about what happens there and getting all the way to those golden moments on the first three, which is when you sell the company. Great plan. Okay. All right. Chad, so Chad is going freestyle. Someone in the audience... Uh, at the Moonshots podcast, we're all about decoding uh, what great entrepreneurs and innovators are doing. And so I'm actually just curious, someone in the audience, what's kind of your biggest takeaway or learning from our conversation here with Johan? Get ready to share. Come on, folks. I'm looking for those arm raises. There's we're, one. Okay, some, okay, one person was entertained. <laughs> Let's make sure you introduce the, the, the individual, the talent at the back. Hello, I'm Micah. Um, test and learn. It's always test and learn. So it was really a reminder for me 
just do things and not think too much, but just experience. So that's something I take. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> test and learn. Now, for, for everybody, the test and learn theme has come back a lot for us. Um, you will be amazed at how many people have ideas that have never been tested or when they finally, and I actually don't think a lot of people even get to actually truly creating a test or an experiment. Um, the amazing thing is the aha moments you get um, when you actually put the product in front of a customer and it can just be like a prototype. It doesn't even have to be a full-fledged shiny product. It can be Airbnbs outside the city. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think the big thing that you've reminded me of is actually uh, this test and learn philosophy of prototyping your ideas doesn't only live in your professional life. Uh, so I was really inspired to, to, to see how you took thinking from uh, your work as a, an investor and you just took it into your personal life. Mm -hmm. And actually you, you, you had a transformation not, not with your co-founder, so to speak, yeah. right? Yeah. And she was not necessarily so excited about going to the forest, but through the testing and learning, you kind of got there. So that's a great reminder for me is that things that can work um, in the office, ideas um, for how you can improve things are not necessarily siloed, but they can actually they can cohabitate in your personal life as well. Fantastic. And thank you to our first insight giver. Mm -hmm. Thumbs up. Okay, everybody, yeah. would you please show your appreciation for Mr. Johan Vermeil. And stick around. We have three more amazing entrepreneurs and innovators from right here in Amsterdam. Mike, do you and, want to... Yes, uh, but hang on. We also have lots of Dutch treats as well. Yes, so I still have lots more... I, Hopefully this plate is empty by the end. Woohoo, easy, easy. Okay, we might need some crowd uh, audience help as well. Um, okay, so that's the, the first of our guests. We're going to move into our second guest now. And um, what's really interesting is um, we're now going to kind of go deeper into the world of coaching and mentoring, systems and habits. Uh, we're going to talk to, and this is, uh, as I said to to Chad yesterday, this is a, a great adventure in understanding Dutch names. Um, so our, our next guest is um, a coach and a mentor at Go Fast Forward. And so he spends a lot of time actually transforming uh, entrepreneurs who are trying to build a business and take it to the next level. And I think we've got lots of systems and ideas that will be helpful for all of us in uh, this next interview. So... Everybody here and online, will you please welcome to the stage, Mr. Martin van Montfort. Okay, Martin, you are like a coach of entrepreneurs. You think so? Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I wanted to pick up on some of the themes that Johan was touching on. Yeah. Um, Johan, uh, Johan was talking about like founders have bootstrapped their company and then all of a sudden the world changes. There's capital, but then what's interesting is there's also expectation. That's the big thing that comes with capital. And so everything starts to change. Now, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about when you meet entrepreneurs at the start of your co coaching program. Take us through a little bit where they're at and the transformation of where they get to after they've been working with you. Yeah. So the, uh, the Go Fast Poor program is uh, meant for scale-ups. So companies with at least 1 million euro in revenue. So they're already serious companies. 
have a good proposition, have a good product, have some customers, have an organization, uh, but want to make the next step. And I think starting a, co starting a company is one, but really growing the company is even more difficult. And the companies we talk to and the, the, the entrepreneurs that, that we are coaching really would like to make the next step. And I think in essence, there's a lot of theory, uh, but my role is also to introduce best practices. I've been an entrepreneur since 2004. I have a lot of experiences and I can share those experiences with all the other entrepreneurs and uh, <clears throat> also make them prevent not making the same mistakes that I, that I made, for example. Um, but I think in this world where you can really share your knowledge and expertise that can help make them the next step in their uh, entrepreneur uh, career. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, what's, in your mind, what's one of the biggest thing that is holding a company and an entrepreneur back from going, like you said, from 1 million, say, to 10 million? How do they get that 10x uh, company? You know, grow to 10 million and then hopefully grow to 100 million. What's, what's one thing that you've, you've seen that's, that's been holding them back? Well, there's a couple of things. And I think uh, Johan already addressed some of them as well. I think first, you really need to have a clear plan, right? You need, need to have that big goal and you need to live it every day, right? Uh -huh. You need to have a good plan, write it down, visualize it, and then live the plan. And uh -huh. make sure that every day when you're in the office, when you work with the people, live the plan, stick to the plan. Do you often uh, meet uh, founders mm -hmm. that have done, done fine but are actually missing this plan? I mean, how yeah. often is that missing from the equation when you meet people? Yeah, so there, there is not a clear plan mm -hmm. or they have several plans, so they don't stick to one plan. Okay, uh, is that common too? Like just wanting to like boil the ocean as we'd say? Yeah, well, I think uh, if you talk to entrepreneurs, we always see multiple opportunities at the same time. Right. And okay. So most of the time we get distracted. And I think Johan also mentioned focus. I think what is really important if you want to grow the business is you need to be focused. Mm. And you really need to focus on what you're good at because most of the time that's what you really like doing. Mm -hmm. And you should focus on that. And the things you're not good at, try to find other people to take care of it. For example, uh, manage the company if you really want to be the innovator or, or think of uh, thinking of new ideas. So I think that, that's one. Uh, and then also having the right mindset. So making sure... Uh, that everybody's aligned, that you have a great team, uh, and then challenge each other, each other on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, well, well, so that's a lot of good stuff there. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Oh. So uh, let's, let's start with that last one, the challenging of each other. Uh, one of the things that, that I see is that um, founding teams and management teams often have all the best intentions, right? But um, constructive conversation or even deliberate polarized argumentation to find the best path is something I see a lot of people struggling with. Yeah. It's they don't know how to like say, no, that's a crazy idea or that's it. What advice do you have for people that can't have healthy debate uh, conversation uh, around what the business should do? Like imagine we're stuck there now. We can't have the right conversation. What advice do you have? Well, I think if you're running a company and when you're in uh, working with business partners, it's like being in a marriage, right? And we all know that within a marriage, it's all about communication, right? If you don't, if you can't be open and transparent, of course, then you probably end up in all kinds of discussions or there's no communication. So first of all, you need to create that, um, that level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And of course, a plan can help with that because if you already have a plan, then you can hold each other accountable. Say, hey, this is the direction, this is our vision uh -huh. as a company. 
and you're not following the vision, you're not doing what we agreed upon. So, so what's harder on. for people to, to have the sense of accountability or the act of holding each other accountable? So is it that everybody knows you should be doing a thing but nobody can really call you out on it? Where, tell us where it really breaks down. I think a lot of people find it difficult right. to hold, each, hold one another yeah. uh, accountable. Uh, but if you really want to grow the company, that, that's something you really need to have. Okay. Yeah. So let's say Chad and I were struggling with accountability. How do you, how do you help us keep each other accountable? Like tell us some of the systems or practices that you help these founders put in place. Yeah, well, I, I always use some of, some of my experiences. And, and just to give you an example, I started my company with three founders. But after a couple of years, I, it didn't feel right anymore because... I, it felt like that not everybody was working that hard or was bringing that entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the table. And then I thought, oh, I can just maybe look at it for a while and then see what happens. And then I thought, no, I just need to speak up. And, mm-hmm. uh, How did I, you do it? Tell us, tell us, take in, us to the moment. Just invited them in for a coffee and expressed how I felt. Okay. And at that same time, uh, one of the guys said, well, I'm almost waiting for one and a half years for this discussion, but I never wanted to start a discussion. So sometimes when you have that gut feeling, you need to express it because some of the other party or your other colleagues, your other business partners have the same feeling. So, okay, so, so speak this, up is, is my advice. Yeah, don't, don't leave things unsaid. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, but isn't it amazing to think when, he, when, you, when Martin finally shared how he felt mm-hmm. that one of your co-founders was sitting on this for a year and a half? yeah. yeah. But how powerful is it that you could find a way of communicating it? Now, often these conversations are hard because of the conflict and the misinterpretation that comes from these kind of discussions. How can I have those discussions? How can our listeners have those discussions without it ending up in an arm wrestle and boxing fight? Yeah, well, of course, I think you need to have the, 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 the rhythm of the business, right? You need to have the weekly, the monthly yeah. uh, catch-ups because what I often see is that those meetings, when you really take the time to sit together, look at the strategy, look at the vision of the company, because it's busy, there's a lot of other things to worry about, then those meetings will disappear from the calendar. Those are the first ones. And ah, I think okay. those are one of the most important ones. Take the time to evaluate on a weekly basis, yeah. on a monthly basis, what's going on within the company, how do you feel. And then, of course, if you do that on a regular basis, things don't stay unsaid for a year. Right? So it, because you have to pressure, you have to pressure to, to speak up. Yeah, it's not just, it sounds like it's not just on the business, but actually how you're feeling as one of the founders as well. Yeah. Like, I'm not as interested in the business now or, hey, guys, I want to run and you guys are yeah. not moving as you yeah. know, fast enough. So let's now go to the audience. I, I want to do a show of hands here. Who here in their jobs experiences moments where you feel things, right, but you don't always say things? When are there – show of hands, I'm going to put my hand up. That's pretty much everyone in the room. So you've got good counsel for all these people. (laughs) And I think what's really interesting about what you said is it's so true, isn't it, that when you get busy, the first thing to go with is, ah, the regular MT meeting, ah, we'll just skip that this week, too busy, right? But it sounds like what you're saying, that ritual of being together and expressing, that kind of helps. Um, Now, when you you work with uh, these founders – 
are they all choosing? Are they choosing to sign up with you? They're all coming to you, ready, willing to take on the world and to go from one million to ten million. Is that generally where they're at? Yeah. So when they sign up for the program, uh, and I'm just one of the mentors or speakers during the program, they pay a serious amount of money for it. Right? Okay. So they're all highly motivated, and everybody in that class is really want to take their company to the next level as well. Okay. So it's different kind of companies, different type of entrepreneurs, and they're, but they're all in there to learn from each other and to learn from, uh, from the guest speakers and, as well. So what are the common challenges that you have for founders when they're highly motivated? We've talked about having a clear plan mm-hmm. and often um, what I call part-time entrepreneurs yeah. or bedtime entrepreneurs yeah. who have lots of ideas but never actually do anything. Yeah. Um, but this is very different. These are people that are highly motivated and doing things. Mm-hmm. What are the, the most common big problems that they have? It sounds like there's a lot of paradigm shifting that you need to do to get from that one to 10. It's not just about working harder. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the most commonly heard things and most discussed themes is people, right? So how do you attract the right people? Uh, and it's in particular in the, in, the, in the current market situation where it's really difficult to get the right talents. I think everybody's struggling with that. Uh, and also, how do you keep the right, how do you keep people? How do you motivate them? Uh, that's something we always discuss. Um, there's a great team which I'm also presenting around profit and cash management. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you... Uh, this is also what Johan was, uh, like the, the management of that capital yeah, and cash flow is critical. Yeah, yeah. I think, of, of course, because if you want to grow the company, yeah. you need cash. Yeah. Yeah. We all know uh, We all know that, but since they are in the phase of growing, that's something that they all didn't give a lot of thought of, right? Because ah. they were growing the company, thinking of the product and the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to grow the business, you need, uh, you need profit and you need cash to, mm-hmm. to do so. So that's, uh, that's, a team that we, that's a theme that we address as well and where we get a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. So we try to give them some tools and some best practices uh, and also how they can create the right budgets and how they can stay in line with that as well. Okay. I, have, I have a question for you just about Dutch and Amsterdam entrepreneurship. You know, I'm coming from New York mm-hmm. and I've spent a lot of time working with Mike in San Francisco when he was there. What do you feel like makes this people and country and culture a great place for entrepreneurs. Kind of what, what are some of the great you know, characteristics of entrepreneurs that you found here that are maybe uniquely uh, Dutch or from, you know, from people from Amsterdam? Um, well, I traveled a lot in the last 12 months and I found out that uh, when I go to other countries, even close by, so in the Nordics or the UK, uh, people really appreciate the fact that Dutch people are really direct mm-hmm. and sometimes we're maybe even a little bit blunt. But oh, y- really? Yeah. <laughs> But yes is yes and no is no, right? Yeah. So we're always really clear. Uh, we don't have a lot of excuses. Yeah. Um, so th- I think that's one thing. And then also, um, if you look back at our history, uh, although we are a real small country, uh, as the size of the country, we have a lot of inhabitants. And I think for many, many decades ago, we, all, we already traveled the seas and tried to connect with other people to trade. Mm. So I think it's in our nature to connect with people and try to work with other cultures as mm. well and really be open. I think the fact that from, uh, I think, the most basic grades in school, we are learning our kids to speak English as well. That's right. Uh, so we have that international mindset because our, our great, great ancestors yeah. already had to do it because we had to travel the seas. Yeah. So I think it's the combination of being really international, entrepreneurial with a trade mindset 
and also just being direct and just say what you think. I think that that's the, I think that's a good combination. Yeah, I've I've been here less than two days and I've been really blown away by just everyone here in in Amsterdam. Uh, so kudos to all of you. Uh, I, I mean, how do you say it? Ho Hollanders, Netherlanders, Nieder Nederlanders? Nederlanders. 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 Yeah. Nederlanders. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, now, so for, for, for me, a couple of key themes here. Um, I think uh, the, the trading history of Holland was, um, like, I still see that in the sort of open system yeah. that it feels like when you work with Dutch people, with Dutch companies. I would say uh, we shouldn't forget how special uh, the Netherlands is for innovation and business. Mm -hmm. The first stock exchange in history, yeah. the first company in yeah. history, yeah. the VOC, the is that right? Yeah. The VOC yeah. was, yeah. Um, I actually lived in a, a Dutch East Indies company warehouse yeah. that used to store spices and ammunition, yeah. which was, was re just really special. But what we have to realize that the, if you just think about the idea of a company as we know it now is largely what the VOC was mm -hmm. with shareholders mm -hmm. and all this uh, and you got a notary yeah. uh, for being part of the company and then the stock exchange and we all know the impact that the financial mm -hmm. system has on the way in which we, we do business. Mm -hmm. But I think there's another thing, there's a very famous uh, Dutch politician, uh, Wim Koch, mm -hmm. and if I remember it's right, it's, he had this philosophy of the der de weg, the third way mm -hmm. of bringing people together. Mm -hmm. I think you will find that there are very few societies that are engineered for working together and overcoming the fact that it's very dense, mm -hmm. uh, very multicultural, but then you walk around and you enjoy such an incredible quality of life despite those conditions. And I just want to remind you when you go to other countries that are jammed full of people, often that has a direct correlation with poverty, lack of infrastructure, but it's sort of the opposite here, mm. here in the Netherlands. Yeah. And you come to a city like Amsterdam and, you know, I, I had to enforce a rule that Joost would remember, like, in order for me to learn Dutch, I had to ban the English yeah. because everyone's l language was so good here. Yeah. Everyone was so willing to speak English. I was like, I'm never going to get anywhere with a Dutch. But I was threatened. You might want to tell people about this. I was threatened with a week with the Nunes and Fucht. Okay. 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 That's tough. So that was That's a big tough. threat. Can, can, you, can you explain to our audience, particularly those that are online, what, what does that mean? So in the southern part of the Netherlands, we have a, it's an old monastery. And if you really want to speak a, a foreign language and you don't want to take a one-year course, you can go to the monastery for one week and there's no connection with the outer world. You're just in the monastery and with the nuns and, uh, and they can teach you any language within one week. So especially if you want to live abroad, work abroad, and you're not familiar with the specific language, you can, you can go in there and at least have the basic, yeah. right? What, what, what do you think, guys? Next Moonshots podcast from Amsterdam, we send, we send Chad <laughs> from the, to the, the ministry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a filmmaker, you could probably make a documentary about it yeah. as well. It sounds very interesting. Yeah. Actually, you'd be totally up for yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, now, now before we let you go, Martin, uh, we forgot to ask you about yeah. which Dutch... I was looking yeah. forward to it. Or, yeah. Which Dutch delicacy? So, so let me get up the list so I get all the names exactly correct. Tai Tai. We got the Tai Tai. Yeah. Speculos. Speculos. Yeah. Speculos, yeah. Uh, Paper Norton. Yeah. Hey, hey, he yeah. doesn't need the Nunes, I don't think. Uh, Dropia. Yeah. Dropia. Yeah. Dropia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so help us out here, Martin. Which is your pick? So it, we already had the Dropias. I, yeah. I really fancy them. But I think we, we spoke a little bit about Dutch heritage, mm -hmm. right? About uh, our past. And I think in particular this time of a year, when we are uh, celebrating Sinterklaas, which is a typical Dutch big event for mm -hmm. the children, 
of course, I, I have to pick the paper note because we only eat them from, let's say, early November until the 5th of December. Good choice. Um, so it's it's a typical Dutch delicacy, and okay. only we only have it this time of year. So okay, so the paper, paper note, note in it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. All right, so I feel like uh, our boy from Brooklyn is going to jump out there into the audience again. So I want you to get your thinking caps on. And I see a number of Finsters drinking beer up the back there. I can see Walter is it drinking beer and uh, RJ's drinking beer. So I'm sure they've got some good questions. Um, so here's the thing. Um, Chad's going to be looking for people who want to share the biggest learning or insight they had from listening to Martin. So let's see some participation. Here we go. Yost. Second row and all. Yeah, so I think it's... First of uh, all, hang on. Who are you? You have to introduce so, oh. Who is this person? Hello, everybody. Raise hands that don't know me yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm a, uh, an advisor. To, uh, to the guys and the girls uh, from uh, moment one. And I'm very thrilled to be here. Feels like home. Um, to my question, um, of, no, to the question, to the observation, um, I think it's all about transparency and honesty when it comes to the relationship between co-founders and management of the board kind of guys and girls. Um, and I think... What I still have as a question, uh, but I don't know whether it's the station. Yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Is um, your role in um, facilitating that? And it's also one maybe towards Johan even later on over a beer. <laughs> uh, how to create an environment to stimulate that transparency, openness, and honesty? I would be very curious to hear about your vision on that. Yeah, well, it's a good question. And uh, I think there's not just one answer to that as well. Uh, I think, in essence, it's all about trust, right? And I think, I, like, uh, like I said early on in the interview, when you're in a company and you have a co-founder or a business partner or a co-owner, I think you should treat it as a marriage, right? And you need to have that same mindset mm -hmm. because you spend most of the time a day working on that big goal is, is trying to grow the company as well. So it's you need to have that that level of trust, right? You need to find it. And if there's no if there's no trust, then that's of course the first step you need to work on. Um, I think a second thing that can be really, really helpful, of course, is get a mentor in. Don't do it by yourself. I think when I wanted to grow the company with one of the founders, when we really decided to go uh, ahead, just the two of us, we brought in two mentors right? because we said, okay, we can't do it alone. We need some help from outside as well. So I always tell people it's, it's about dare to ask, right? Dare to ask for advice. Mentors can be really, really helpful, especially if they're a little bit outside the business as well. These can be the, 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 the guys, the, the women that can ask you all kind of nasty questions to challenge you. I think yes. that's what we, you need to be challenged, right? That, 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 that's really important. So can I just, to make sure we capture this learning, you're saying that the, 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 impact of an external advisor is in the fact that they can have a little bit more freedom to ask tougher questions yeah. and do you think that's because they're not involved on a daily basis so they don't have all the the bias that comes with being an employee yeah. they have a little bit of distance yeah. to say come on that really wasn't yeah. great and they're not scared of losing their job they're, it's just yeah. a yeah. open feedback yeah and they are allowed to ask stupid questions because they're, they're not part of the business right, right. and i think mm. that is sometimes what we forget we sometimes we are too focused 
And it's good that people from the outside ask yes. you all kinds of other questions which you already have forgotten about. Well, and what's really interesting between what both you and uh, Johan are saying is there's this trading off between focus and perspective all the time. Yeah. And that sounds to me to be one of the greatest, and I'm looking at co-founders here who've been up all night finishing products, but having having the, the ability to zoom out and zoom in yeah. and zoom out yeah. and shift between the different modalities yeah. that come with being a founder, yeah. that's why we love it. Maybe sometimes it's a little challenging. Yeah. But we like a challenge. We okay. do. Yeah. We do. All right, everybody, would you please give it up for Martin, the super coach? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I know we've got more and more guests arriving at the back, so people are, are welcome to join in the room and come on in. Um, we're halfway through. Um, can I send you back out in the audience, Jay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, grab the mic. Um, I want to go uh, and, and ask, who's got some thoughts on this idea between focus and perspective? Who else here is finding that uh, a big thing in their role? Focus, perspective. Who, who here is seeing that in their role? Let's have a look around here. Oh, there's a, there's a little hand raising going here. There's a little founder over here. Um, Don't forget to introduce yourself. Yeah, introduce yourself. My name is Dave. Hey, Dave. Co-founder. <laughs> <laughs> now, we uh, have been building uh, the Fin product, which we're going to look at uh, later on uh, today. And I think um, my perspective on the focus perspective uh, thing would be mainly that um, if you are building one specific thing, it's very simple to get into a tunnel to only fix a certain element because you're working on it like every day. And it really helps uh, to have other people uh, around you, which we uh, had, which was really helpful, to get, actually make sure you also get the, yeah, this, this other perspective on uh, things. And it also really helps if you speak a lot to your clients, for example, because they also could be kind of mentors for the product that you built. So I think it's very the balance is very interesting how to continuously move between those two elements, because if you're only too much in the perspective part and working with a small team, you're not going to build a product either. <laughs> so that's a bit, I think, the biggest challenge to, to, to solve. Great. Thank you. Guys, give it up for Dave. I, I love that idea of having clients as mentors, because then you can have that client and product focus, Yeah. but then you, you have people from outside the company yeah. Um, that are giving you that feedback. Good idea, Dave. Yeah. I, I, I really like that because we, we get very excited about our own ideas. Uh, there's actually a scientific uh, process called the endowment effect where we get so in love with our own ideas, we forget that our end customers are not in love with our ideas at all. In fact, what's really interesting is that end users, consumers, uh, they're endowed, they are uh, very partial to something that we call the status quo. So whenever you propose a new product or service in the world, customers are instantly looking at the switching costs, the, the, the trade-off of what you're asking. So you have your shiny thing and you're like, woohoo, we got it, we got it. And you're like, you're absolutely convinced the world is going to love it. But actually the reality is that customers are not in love with it at all. In fact, you're even lucky to have their attention, the most scarce resource in the universe, you're lucky to have their attention for a brief second. And at that point that you do manage to get their attention, they're literally like, what's this going to cost me? Like, how much, like, what do I get? And like, 
How do I, how do I, if I do this, how much work is it going to be? So the classic thing is here, um, if you look at, you're an iPhone user, and I say to you, I have an Android phone that's really good, the first thing you're going to go, oh, my contacts sync, oh, they don't use iMessage. This is all what we call switching costs, okay? So the, there's always this trade-off going on. And so there's this philosophy, particularly in Silicon Valley, about 10x. And the reason that you will always find me yabba, 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 10x, this and that, is it's a very nice rule. You should make something 10 times better than today's solution. And it's actually proven. There's a guy, you can check it out on Google. His name's John Gornville at Harvard Business School. And he just spent his time studying the degrees of which, how many times better does a product actually need to be to launch successfully? And he actually, and this is a, a nice uh, little secret that you won't know, he actually in his study found that it needs to be nine times better. So he runs uh, over to Google in the, the early 2000s and he presents his work to them. And one of my old colleagues was in the audience. This is Tom Chi. And uh, all these people are there and he says, bup, 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 you've got to be nine times better. And all the Google guys, and this is like Google X, you know the guys that do all the moonshots? They were onto something. Um, they do the, the, the moonshot stuff. And, and uh, so, so John says, well, it needs to be nine times better. And he looked at why um, all these companies had failed and technologies had failed. And he actually has a formula for why it should be nine times. But the Google guys are like, 9x? It doesn't quite sound very good. So they just added a whole new factor and put it up to 10x. So all the founders out there, if you thought 9x was hard enough, Google just raised the bar to making it 10x. But there is a real truth in it that switching costs are massive for users. So for all of the entrepreneurs in our audience, for all of the creators, all of the people that really want to do something great in the world, Go on that mission, but you have to know this one thing, that as much as you love your product, your customer loves the status quo, loves it, hates change, hates change. So you need to come up with something that is so remarkable, so remarkable that it will have this attraction that it's naturally so good at addressing a problem, but it's so much better than today that they will, they will climb mountains to get that area. Yeah, I'm going to plug our very first episode of the Moonshots podcast um, on Elon Musk because I think he embodies that uh, 10x mindset. And if you just listen to him talk, you can hear everything that he does at all of his companies, he's thinking in X. So if we improve the efficiency of the motors uh, with batteries, 4x, then okay, we're closer to 10x. And then if we uh, decrease the cost of the batteries by 2x, okay, so then we're at this factor. And everything yep. he thinks about is getting to that 10x because he knows that a company like Tesla is only going to be uh, effective and scale if we can move all of these people that are right. in traditional uh, yes. gas-powered vehicles to fully electric yep. vehicles. So if you want to check out the, the Elon show, just go to moonshots.io. You can hear that. There's actually one clip that we took of uh, Elon where he does the formula. I cannot stress how important that is. If you want to know what getting to 10x looks like, he gives it in one of his talks. He actually gives it and we recorded it. So it was fantastic. Okay, so now we're into the second half of the show and we're going to do a big switch now because we're going to get into some hardcore infrastructure talk. Uh, we're going to get into the world of laying fiber. You know, the amazing thing is that we create so much data every single day that we kind of forget 
that all this software and all these applications are actually driven by the fact that we have nodes and hubs, glass fiber, dark fiber, all of these things running all around the world. So we're very excited uh, to bring to you one of Holland's gurus in infrastructure. Would you please, from KPN, please welcome Peter Plazier. Now, um, we're going to be a little bit more organized with you, Peter, so we're going to remember to ask you for your, for your oh, favorite right. Dutch yeah. uh, delicacy. So tell us about what you see here and, and what gets your vote. My vote gets uh, the speculaas. Ooh. Yeah. The spicy you can, cookie. Uh, mm. The speculaas is, uh, especially, it's not only a cookie for me, but I also used to put it on my uh, boterham, my bread, when I was a child. Hang on, hang on. So you have bread. Yeah. That's meant to be the sandwich bit, but you put a cookie in between yeah, the bread. A lot of bed, uh, butter. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's good. And then two slices of speculaas. Actually, you is also have... Is this a Peter creation or is this no, like no, a no, national no, no. pastime? Oh, my gosh. We have lots of friends yeah. here. We have lots because, of votes be, in the audience. Because of this insight, my uh, children, now they use speculoos. And that's sort of a... There's so a the spread like... The cookie a, in a spread. Yeah. Uh, and they say the Dutch are a bit weird. Come on, like who puts the cookie into a spread? I I'm going to have to go get right. some bread and butter and put some speckles Yeah, now in. you're only getting half of the... Take the it home, uh, Mike, and yeah, check. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. We have, we've got a vote for speculas. We've had a vote for the paper notes in, the dropjes. Sorry, Ronald, you know what that's leaving. <laughs> that's what I leave. Yeah. Yeah, you can blame Yost. That was all his idea. Okay. Um, so... I, I think it's really interesting um, to to hear from you, Peter. You're, you're not only in this world of infrastructure, um, but part of your backstory is that working for uh, not only the largest telco here in, in the Netherlands, but it would have to be one of Europe's biggest uh, telecommunications operators, correct? One of, no, there, there are bigger because there's a lot of uh, um, joint, of, uh, yeah. There are a lot of alignment between the telcos, but it's uh, one of the largest still independent telco. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the special thing that you're often doing is working on these big infrastructure projects. Yeah. But you're also going in sometimes to companies that have been acquired yeah. uh, by KPN. Now, this for us as a sort of cultural moment in innovation is dripping with all sorts of interesting ideas. The first thing is like... In comes the infantry with their flags. Uh-oh, here comes the yeah. KPN. So we want to talk about that. But yeah. the other interesting thing is culturally how you can build bridges into new cultures um, yep. and how you do that. So we've got a lot to, to unpack with you. But tell us about, uh, take us to a moment when you're thinking about uh, the first day when you walk into a new company that KPN is working with and you want to connect to the leaders in that organization Tell us how you do it. How do you walk into to a situation like this and get everybody aligned, or to use a good Dutch saying, to get all the boats sailing in the right direction? Yeah. What techniques, what practices are you doing? How do you do this? Yeah, that's a very good question because that's that's always the challenge uh, to get um, yeah connection to to the to the team and to the people in into the company because there's a lot of uh, resistance and uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of questions about what's what's going on and uh, what will be the the new future for us and for our company and mm. do I still get uh, uh, will will stay with within the job? Yeah. 
uh, of course, that's a, a very important question. Um, I think it just starts with yeah, connecting. Yeah? Just a one-on-one -on -one connection, uh, get conversation, get, uh, um, yeah, give a lot of answers to the questions. And uh, if you don't have the answer, just say that you don't know the answer yet. Uh, if you have the answer, it depends a little bit on who you speak to, but uh, I'm I'm also uh, very favorite of being very transparent uh, over that. So, so you're saying we have an emergent theme, I think, for this think show. So, yeah. It's feeling like transparency is is quite big there. But but let's get but, into it. You're walking in there and you're trying to create this transparency, Peter. But you you've basically laid up an environment where people are like. An extreme emotional situation. It's either fight or flight, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, you can say, hey, let's have a cuddle and get around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, but people are a little bit worried about the situation. How do you, how do you nah, really get them to become easy and, and then make those connections? I think it's also uh, a praise on what they've achieved. Yeah? So, you, um, KPN uh, acquires a lot of smaller companies and they have achieved a lot. Yeah. So, you, uh, you appraise that and you uh, say that people have uh, done a very good job uh, and that's one of the reasons KPN buys it. So that mm. gives them a little bit proud okay. and, and that's important. And that you also are very keen on still get all the assets, what's in that company, that you want to keep that. Mm. And the assets is of course, yeah, it, it, it's uh, uh, real assets, material, but it's also about people and about knowledge and about how they... Um, uh, um, are acting on the market. So, um, but they also know that normally you go into uh, synergies, economies of scale and uh, reorganizations. Yeah. Um, of course, you, you can say, yeah, we're not there yet. Uh, it's, th th that's a process. So you, you step into the process and uh, try to, to get people in that process. Normally they understand. Uh, and sometimes you have to make the tough decisions uh, and it's better to do that quite fast. Okay, so tough decisions. I like getting into moments of tough decisions. So I, I actually have, yeah, following up on that, um, many of our listeners uh, are running their own, you know, small companies and, and, and are bootstrappers, uh, but many of them also work for large co corporations. Yep. How have you found... How do you work in an agile way in a big, humongous company? You know, how can you work more like a startup yep. uh, and be more agile? Because I know that that's something that a lot of our listeners are are struggling with. Is you know, I'm a product manager or a mm -hmm. VP at a company. How can I get my company to work in a more agile way and be more responsive to to make the right decisions? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of uh, corporate companies um, I know in the Netherlands are dealing with that, uh, how can we be more agile? Uh, they are looking a lot of now the startup companies, the Spotify's who are using the agile uh, way of working. And I have to say a lot of uh, corporate companies use agile way of working. And uh, my own experience also that um, we have uh, used that agile way of working in the regional markets um, uh, approach. Uh, because you need the whole organization, so not only the marketing and the sales, uh, or the product management, or the chain management, but also the customer service, also the retail organization, mm -hmm. also the engineers. And you want uh, to make, if you want to roll out fiber, for instance, in a city, then you want to uh, get all the teams together 
in the approach of rolling out fiber and commercially uh, are successful in that city. Uh, and that's, that's a very good way to do that on the agile uh, way of working. So every week um, uh, onto, uh, in, in the same room, stand-ups, uh, see where you are, uh, what's your responsibility, what did you reach, uh, mm -hmm. what are your questions, where, where do we need extra help, uh, and get everyone involved, and uh, it works. Okay, but um, this to me is like a big uh, idea, in fact, transitioning teams from perhaps waterfall into agile. Yep. Sounds easy, sounds easy, but um, massively challenging because you have to give a lot of supposed certainty when you work on a waterfall basis. And we have a nice big uh, book that's about this thick and it says every little thing that we're going to build and you have to give that away and trust in the process. But you were saying something really yeah. interesting about getting everyone on the same page for Agile. Yeah. Um, let's get into that a little bit. How on earth do you do that? And particularly on infrastructure projects. I mean, I largely work on software with a little bit of hardware IoT stuff. Like you're talking about having a guy digging up the, the road and putting – like how do you get everyone on the same page for that? Uh, well, it's um – Let's in in the IT world, agile uh, way of working is common, eh? also within the corporate. Uh, but especially in the more commercial, on the more commercial side, uh, it's quite new. Mm. Um, personally, I just went into a, a sort of conference. It was at the at the bank and uh, Rabobank, and then the um, uh, Southernland. Southernland. Uh, that's the the guy who just um, introduced agile way of working. Uh, He, he had a presentation and there was 80% was IT and some yeah. commercial guys. And I was really uh, amazed by his, um, yeah, his, his ideas and how it works. And uh, I thought, why not for the commercial side as well? Because it's um, a very constructive way of working that you're on the same page and that you make impact. And then uh, what we already said, it's just starting to do it with team you start to do it with one team yep. where there's a lot of um yeah complex complexity around uh, i started with one team and eventually uh, with a colleague of mine he's also uh, here uh, somewhere over there uh, we started it with uh, eventually uh, eight or nine teams working on the agile way and just um made it through uh, as our way of working Okay, so, so you, you, managed, you managed to go from like one unit across up to nine different units working in the same yeah. way with Agile. Okay, yeah. and so I just want to take you back this, uh, for everyone who's in the audience, this is the book um, yeah, exactly. that uh, Peter was talking about. It's called Scrum by Jeff Sutherland and JJ Sutherland. I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's called Scrum. Uh, it's absolutely the godfather of Agile thinking. Um, and it's, it's, so you That's actually got to hear Jeff Sutherland speak. Yeah. That's great. Um, also, I want to say, though, uh, I don't know if you know this about Jeff, but he actually was in the army and yeah, implemented Scrum in the army. In Vietnam, he was. Yeah. As a, as a pilot yeah. of an, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things for everybody is what you won't know is that Peter also was in the army. So That's you just true. built yeah, the yeah. best segue for this show I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> What did you? What do you use in these big agile projects with KPN? Uh, is there anything that you learn when you go back to your time in the military? Is there anything that you see yourself using? 
making sure people turn up on time maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But yeah, what lessons did you learn right back then? Because you're actually coaching cadets in, in the military. Uh, what's it like? Do you use any of those practices now when you're, when you're working with large teams? Um, the only, no, the only thing is that I just ask uh, the cadets how much will uh, an F-16 cost? Just to make them a little bit aware of the budgets going on in the army. Yeah. Um, I think it's important that the people are a little bit you know, uh, aware of, of cost and cost-minded. Yeah. Um, but actually it was a long time ago for me that I was in, uh, in the army. I just uh, was a sort of a teacher indeed. Yeah. And uh, uh, for the... Uh, for, for the cadets just to learn some economics and internal organization. And uh, it was a great time, but I didn't uh, use a lot of my uh, experience uh, right then. Uh, on the other hand, we had a lot of different teachers of different, um, let's say, um, disciplines. disciplines. Yeah. And uh, the agile way of working is, of course, multidisciplinary yeah. Yeah. way of working. So you could say that's uh, that's something we have in common. Great. Mm. So now I want you to imagine that all of us want to employ agile as a way of working, and we're sitting here like, how do you do it? Yeah. What if you're only allowed to give us one set of advice? Yeah. To implement agile. And this really move, means moving to a much more dynamic way of working, yeah. very process, collaborative way of working, lots of scrums, lots of sprints, all those good keywords. What's the one, one uh, piece of advice that you would give uh, to anyone thinking about it? Uh, no, you just start with one team and get a good coach who's really into the discipline of the way of working of scrum. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, start with one team and a, and a good coach, because... It, it, it seems like a very flexible way of working, but in fact, it's very disciplined way of working. Right. Um, so you need to really, um, yeah, work on that scrum method. Mm -hmm. uh, a coach is very helpful, so that's one advice. Okay. And so then, hang on. So the, so I'm I, I'm I'm deconstructing yeah. this. One small team start just with eight, with eight people. Eight yeah. people. Okay. Um, Make sure you have a good coach, yeah. okay, who really understands Scrum and Agile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you, yeah, you have a, a product owner and a Scrum master and you, no, you, you, you uh, have the team uh, ready. And then you see within two, three weeks, you, th you, you notice a lot of enthusiasm. Wow. And then suddenly there's a moment that uh, people outside the teams mm -hmm. who are not into that Scrum uh, uh, way of working, they are very... Curious. Yes. They want to work as well because yeah, yeah. The, the team is so enthusiastic. Uh, what are they doing? Yeah. And then uh, you get the second team and then you get maybe the, the third team and still get the coaches and the kickoffs with the team and we, we're going to, to do this. And then, and it then it will work because the results are coming as well. So when you build the nine teams, with a lot of what you were doing was um, as you would build a scrum team, you were kind of almost trying to make it contagious within the organization. It sounds like you're looking to create this uh, new way of working, yeah. but get everyone excited about this new approach and yeah. then almost letting the, the contagion spread. Is yeah, it? yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but it's, uh, there is, a, there is, because uh, I was in a domain which, which was a, a, a separate domain. Mm -hmm. In a corporate organization, in a bigger organization, yeah, you have also your um, yeah, the, the governance eh, of, yeah. a, of an organization. And there's 
there is an there is a moment that you have your yeah agile way of working mm -hmm. and that it's is linked to the normal governance. Mm. Yeah, it's not uh, and that th that is not what you want. Yeah, that you have sort of two governance going on in no. the same organization. That's confusing. So and yeah. then you need really need to decide. Are we going to do the next step with the yeah with more departments in the organization and eventually the whole organization, yeah. and th yeah that that makes it quite more difficult than a startup. Yeah, I feel like that's that's also for the for the next broadcast we do from Amsterdam. Then we have to go from from one team to one organization to like five companies. How we kind of build yeah. this agile. Yeah. Thing. Okay. We're going to send you out into the crowd, Chad. Grab your mic. So this is the moment where we're going to put all of you guys on the hotspot uh, for transparency, huh? Uh, for new ways of working in terms of agile. So who here had some aha moments when Pete Plazier was waxing lyrical about agile and transparency? Anybody? Look at them. I think you've... Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. We got some people back here. Who's got some thoughts up the back there? I can see lots of people. What did, what did you learn or, or pick up from uh, our conversation with Peter? Anyone? Uh, oh, here we go. Here Please we go. introduce yourself. Siren. Um, I'm also uh, one of the fathers of Finn. Hey. There you go. Yeah. Um, I think, well, one of the uh, things that uh, Peter highlighted. Uh, um, is the, there's a difference between uh, applying Scrum and practicing Scrum. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very, very important one. So basically, uh, make sure that you're all aware of well, what you want to achieve uh, applying this methodology. Uh, and once you're all on the same page, uh, you're good to go. Mm. I think that's a, I think an, in, uh, yeah, an important uh, learning. Nice one. Thank yeah. you. Okay, everybody, would you please give your welcoming, your rewarding thank you to Pete Plazier. Okay, so we have had three fabulous guests. Um, Chad, we've heard some emerging themes. What have you got on your themes so far from Johan? And the whole crew, yeah, what, my, what, what do you got on the my list? My favorite part of uh, unpacking entrepreneurs and innovators is uh, these uh, recurring themes that emerge. And I think tonight, one of the biggest ones that resonated was transparency and not being afraid to, to speak your mind, uh, both as a co-founding team, but also, you know, within the company. Yeah. Um, and then also the importance of outside perspective and mentorship and, and coaching. Yeah, that was big. That was uh, yeah. big. I think that can help foster more yes. transparency if you have someone yep. on the outside kind of looking in. Those are, yeah. I think my favorite so far has been transparency. Yeah. That's something I think that a lot of us who are starting or, or running companies could really learn, yeah. learn I from. Thought, I thought a good one was having customer as a coach, right? Having that uh, accountability. So... Um, we are now ready to introduce to you our last guest, our very last guest. And uh, it's really exciting because uh, we have somebody who is a longtime television and media guru and executive, um, and he's the, uh, the, the big cheese at really very much the, the entrepreneur's bible here in the Netherlands. Um, it's really the go-to, the fast company, the Wired here in the Netherlands. So I would love you all to show a big Amsterdam welcome to Ronald Teafurt. Yeah. 
Okay, so Ronald, you're in the hot seat because you're going to help us close the show, yeah. bring it all together, um, and uh, you've got to realise that the three of us are sort of the only thing between the audience and having more beer, so it's a precarious situation that yeah, you're in. <laughs> that's always uh, a good challenge, but yes. uh, thank you for having me on the show. Okay, thank you. Um, so I want to ask, first of all, um, you're in the business of ideas. Um, right. You're in the, the business... You don't lay uh, glass fiber. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. So you, what's really important is that you build a business around ideas, that you inspire people. So tough question, but how, how do you do that? How do you get ideas that inspire the world? Um, well, before you have ideas, you, have, you must have the right people. And I think in every person, there's someone which is very creative. But you have to give them the floor, you know? You have to give them mm. space mm. to grow. And um, I think uh, most of the time, uh, companies are not able to look at the person, but just at the business, and they forget about what you would like to do in your life, mm. you know? And really what you love. Not only about your payments or your next job, but yeah. what's in the core of your interest. So that makes you, um, that puts you in a really interesting situation because not only do you need to have the mental capacity to think about what's happening yeah. in the world with technology and entrepreneurialism, but you also need to be very tuned into your team. Yeah, that's, that's true. So how do you, and this is so great because what Johan was talking about is helping founders, building teams. If you look at the agile transformation, uh, that Peter talked about or what Martin talked about with coaching founders. All of this high-tech world full of data is coming back to people. And that's yeah. been a huge theme of our show. Uh, what, you, what you really bring about is this very interesting idea. Ed Catmull, who's the CEO of Pixar, yeah. talks about creating safety as the primary role that he has for great ideas to exist. Yeah, um, so now... Um, in your channeling your inner Ed Catmull, how do we do this? You, you walk into the office and you want to create this environment that's focused on the people and what they're trying to achieve and helping them grow. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you unlock that? Well, if, you, um, if I look back to the time that I worked for television, um, you know, it's, 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 it starts with a good atmosphere, of course, what you, what you said, but it's, you have to pinpoint the dot on the horizon. You know, and you have to share your thoughts about what the product or the show in the end could be. But there's a lot of roads to get there. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a process that you do in one hour. You know, it takes time. You know, the guy, John the Mall, um, I worked for him, as you yep. have seen on my CV. You know, it's very inspirational to work with this guy. But it's also mind-blowing, like, wow, shit, I have to think something Within two hours, right. otherwise I get fired, or yeah. it feels like you get fired. Did it? Did you? Were you really feeling that pressure to to produce ideas that quickly? Yeah, sometimes. Um, well, for example, uh, once I got um, a, a, a jurist guy, and we got a show from the states, and I got the order to make in just twenty four hours a show for the Netherlands, but which wasn't that we, you know, uh, stole it from the other one. Hang on, so you, so you get the call, make me a television show in 24 hours. Yeah. 
Okay. How do you do or, that? Or, you know, it, it was like, we sold already 70 episodes, but um, it's a game show. But yeah, I told him something about this and that, but it doesn't uh, work good now. So just make something. <laughs> well, that, that's the bad stories, of course. But, um, you know, that, that, that happens. Yeah. But so it's, it's, it's really difficult to, you know, I always say, like, if you uh, want to uh, create an, a game show, it's not difficult to do the, the introduction, the middle part, but the, 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 the final episode, that's where it's, you know, that's where the crux is. So how do you ensure that you've got the right people uh, working in the right way to get that job done? What do you do as editor-in-chief? What, tell us about some of the, the tactics, the behaviours that you employ that enable your people, your teams to achieve that. Yeah. What are you deliberately doing to ensure success? Yeah. One, uh, one thing I want to say first is if you look at television, you look for the people who like to be creative. You know, they don't have any boundaries. You know, sometimes it are the people who are on the street who you think they are almost lunatic, but they're the best one. Uh-huh. I think you know that from yeah. the, the, the advertising uh, industry as well. But if you look at, at Emers, you know, when I started there six and a half years ago, the first thing you do is look at all the people and ask them the same question. Who are you? Where you want to be in a few years? And, and, and what do you do in, in life? And with that in mind... Uh, you can decide if somebody is on the right track mm-hmm. or right position or not. And sometimes you have to say, okay, you like it on the position you have, but you better move on because it's not the right track for you. And that's just profiling someone, yeah. my gut feeling. Yeah. I sometimes say to my wife, I don't know where I learned this, but you know, it's the same if I have to do an interview, yeah. you know, and for example, a few months ago with the CTO of AliExpress, I don't know the guy. I just have mailed him and I said, we want to do a cover shoot, an interview with you. And within a few minutes, he's in China. It was 11 o'clock at night and in the Netherlands was three uh, in the afternoon. And we have to become friends within just a few minutes. Otherwise, we have 45 minutes and then it ends up. So that, that's always a, a nice sport to, uh, to profile somebody, to become friends yeah. and get get more information than just, you know, what the press people also tell you. Yeah. That's not what we want to know, of course. So do you, do you build models of, like, each of your team members? Are you, like, calculating what they're looking for, uh, what their hopes and dreams are? Do you feel like you've almost got, like, a, a mental library of all the dreams and hopes of your team? Yeah. But that's, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about communication and psychology and media is all about those things. Yes. And it's, it's also like when I started at Emers, you know, we're doing uh, uh, print online and events. We're the biggest here on e-business in the Netherlands. We always say we're like the Wired or the fast company from, from here. But it's, 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 um, it's always about, I forgot your question now. So, you know, this, this, where we're going is, um, unlocking all of these practices uh, within your people. You've got like this library mm-hmm. of all of their hopes and dreams. Are you constantly checking against that? Are you, are you constantly saying, oh, I've got to make sure Chad, I know he really wants to do this, he's motivated by this. Are you literally checking in on that, that library of, of their, their dreams? Yeah, um, yeah. But, but the most important thing is that you have to look uh, what's, is their biggest passion, yeah. you know? We, we sometimes have people in Netherlands and they write a letter like, oh, I want to work for you. Or, 
I, I always say like, I don't care. You know, we want to have people who are passionate about the industry. Yeah. So you want to know the next story or the next uh, evolution and you really know the facts. You know, writing, everybody can write, mm -hmm. you know, but it's about really being interested in, in, in people, mm -hmm. in industries. Which is, which is interesting because finding people with passion is something that some of our other guests talked about. Mm. What, what are you looking, what's a sign that someone is super passionate and driven? But say you were interviewing Chad or I, what are you looking for? What's a signal that maybe some of the entrepreneurs here can be looking for when they're interviewing people? What should we be on the lookout for, for, for talented and passionate people? You know, um, the, the method I, I, I use is uh, I always uh, talk business-wise, but also personally. So most of the time, like the guy from Ali, within five minutes, he will know that I have a wife, two children, what their habits are, etc., etc., to just make him feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I do the same with my employees. You know, yeah. it's not like, okay, I'm the boss, mm -hmm. but it's like I, I, I have also my issues, you know, and I want to be one of them. Mm. And then, yeah, you, it, you get a connection, you know? It's, it's almost to me like the transparency thing is coming back again. Yeah. Being, being yourself, being who you really are and not trying to, you know, wear a fancy tie and pretend you're the boss. I think that's the, the best thing you can do because, um, you know, it's the same for myself. It's like uh, five years ago, it was like people saying, oh, what you're doing, Ronald? The, the, the market wants specialists and you're a generalist, you know? And then there was emails like, wow, your CV is great. <laughs> you know, in about five years, the world will be changed, changed. again. Yeah. yeah. So I always say also to my children, I introduce them now, but it's, the, the, two yeah, the two girls, um, but you know, you have to do what you love and um, the world will change every day. You know, um, you don't know what will happen. And it's also the same if you, if you look at our audience, our readers or our visitors, you know, it's not like, oh yeah, we must be on Facebook. No, what is their mindset? What's, what's going on? Right. If you know what they are thinking, then you can be ahead of the next step. It's the same with the text messages, you know, everybody was like, no, we don't want to have that. But in the end, we are very happy with it. So it's always about, well, that point. Yeah, I, I would love, it, it sounds like you're, not only have to get into the minds of the, your own people, but being a media company, also understand what's going to resonate and be popular with people. I'm, I'm curious kind of how you go about finding the trends of topics and people and companies to profile that is kind of ahead of where, right. where the industry is. Um, I'm just, I'm curious kind of about your process and how you okay. do that research and find what, yeah. what, yeah, because what's it, going to make Emers, you know, yeah. right, be out there? Because what's interesting about this question is you're the tastemaker. So how does yeah. how does a tastemaker exactly like build the the, the zeitgeist? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's something every minute of the day. Also in my private life, you know, you're always looking for the next big thing. And, you know, I, I always say I don't like reading, but I read a lot of stuff, uh, mostly on Flipboard and, and that kind of things. But, you know, it's, it's that sense. I, I, what I said to you before, I'm a sort of digital trend watcher and it's sort of disease almost, you know, it's like, yeah, there's voice coming on, you know, what can we do with voice? Yeah. And you, you, you try things yourselves, like Joan said before, um, you talk to people, you just, 
you know, you, you, you say to someone, well, I don't think this is going to work, and they're going to say, yeah, it's going to work. Oh, yeah, I'm great. I thought so also. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's always like, yeah, like a trend watcher. And, and also with the mindset of our audience in mind, yeah. it's, uh, you know, what will be the impact of it, et cetera, et cetera. And then we make content of it in uh, several forms. So we've talked a bit about the process of attracting and keeping talent and what's really refreshing is in this world of data and software and startups that it's still about the people. It's still about the way in which you interact, the way you collaborate with people and you're doing all of this within the setting of Amsterdam and I think it's really exciting to hear from you what makes Amsterdam so special? Why is it um, that we, we are in a city that's full of creativity and innovation. Why is that so? Well, um, um, one of the other guests already mentions the VOC mentality, of course, but I, I was raised in the east of the Netherlands, and it's not a big difference between there and Amsterdam, but I live now for 25 years over here. It's like, you know, the atmosphere. You can be yourself. You know, it's like nobody will say or, or blame you for something. It's like you can sort of self-employment, I say mm -hmm. self-development. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if you have several people of that in one office, you get a, a, a can get creativity until yes. big heights, you know? You know that yourself, I think, when you yeah. are working here. And um, also, it's we are a small country, you know? It's always like, oh, we are going to conquer the world, but in the end, we are just a very small country country where as, as big as Paris so we have to be very creative hmm. um, with a little bit of money so you, you know? think there's actually some natural constraints mm. yeah. um, I, you know I hear this story a lot that because the Dutch have always been forced into a trading mentality as a yes. small nation you've built bridges virtual bridges um, to the rest of the world and that still seems from what you're saying to be alive today yeah but we have to you know it's like if you're so small, um, you have to be smart again. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I think if you look five years ago, when, when we said we are from Amsterdam, it was okay. You know, it's sex, drugs, and that, that kind of thing. But I, I feel in about, well, the last year, it's like, wow, cool, Amsterdam. I think it's because of the geographically place. Yeah. Um, and and, and it, it's just a shift, you know? It's like people see like, wow, that's a nice place. Um, and you see that also last, last night I was on the TV there was like the tourism in all of Europe was going down except for the Netherlands and Amsterdam was not like 5% up but more yeah. and I was like why? why why is that you know for us it's normal yeah. but there's something magically or something yeah there's, there's, there's definitely a very magical cozy uh, as well it's cozy and I think that you feel the openness culturally, you feel the openness. I always say that the greatest challenge of living in Amsterdam is that you're not expected to be anyone other than yourself. Yeah. But that is often the greatest challenge of all. Um, so what I want you to help us do now, Chad, are you ready to go out into the audience? Okay, so this is where we're gonna mix it up a little bit. I didn't tell Chad about this. Uh-oh. Um, we're going to ask the audience to tell us why they think Amsterdam is such a great city for being creative, why it's such a hub of innovation. So who has some thoughts 
on yeah, what who, makes Amsterdam so special. Yeah, who, want, who wants to brag on your city? Come on, there's got to be on. someone out here. Why is Amsterdam so great? Yeah, okay, don't forget to introduce yourself. So, <clears throat> good afternoon, everybody. I am the, the father of Joost, Frans is my name. I was born and raised up in Amsterdam, in the hey. west side of uh, the Amsterdam. What makes uh, Amsterdam so special? Uh, Amsterdam uh, is, has a history. I heard you talking about the VOC. That's for the, the Netherlands very, very important. And it has so an... Um, uh, uh, a history where we can be uh, proud on to be uh, of, to come to come be an Amsterdamer that had, you have to earn that if you know what I mean it's a kind of a trophy so if you want to earn that you have to study about Amsterdam just visit the uh, brown cafes yeah. then you can m meet a lot of people who has talking people from the neighborhood etc that makes you rich about uh, the history of Amsterdam it has to do with uh, uh, shipyards uh, the heaven mm. uh, what means uh, the Damrak everybody's talking about a Damrak a rock is a place to be uh, where you can go with your boats yeah. uh, they putting on the on, on the side uh, for waiting for next uh, transportation etc this is the history of Amsterdam and I'm uh, still proud I'm now living no more in Amsterdam but still to, uh, I'm proud to be an Amsterdammer Yay! that's it very good all right who else who else has some ideas to offer on why Amsterdam is a creative and innovation hub. Don't be shy because Chad has been known to force people to speak. Look at him, he's a big brutal guy. Who else has got some thoughts? Yeah. Why is Amsterdam so great? Hi, it's Steven. I would also say because of the honesty of the people living there. So people, if you look, if you look strange, people will tell you you look strange. Yeah. If you look nice, people will tell you look nice. And if you have a good idea, people will tell you you have a good idea. If you have a shitty idea, you, people will tell you, yeah. change this and this and this, or help you to make it better. Okay, so openness. I, I think there's a great Dutch saying, a true friend uh, in Holland tells you when you have spinach on your uh, teeth, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. So Joost again, um, I think we've been talking about uh, corporate agility. But maybe this agile metaphor maybe even can be taken to a nationwide level. I, I think that as a nation, we've always been forced to adjust, to be flexible because we're not with many. So we need to be yeah. smart. So I think as a nation, we're very open to mm -hmm. trying to do new stuff mm -hmm. apart from a great infrastructure, apart from great levels of education apart from the fact that we're physically quite well situated where we are so i would like to uh, think that as a nation we have a lot of agile characteristics oh the first agile nation thank you so now chad why don't you go to the lady who was the first to comment and ask her she's got lots of ideas i can tell okay what I think about Amsterdam. And why is it a creativity and innovation hub? Uh, for, for me, Amsterdam is really a free spirit. So mm. there's so much energy in the city and um, about exploration, uh, doing new things. 
um, yeah, freedom. That's uh, free soul. That's what comes to my mind. Fantastic. All right, everybody, would you please say your appreciation from the big cheese from Emus, Ronald! Okay, now if you hadn't already noticed, there's plenty of beer being consumed. There's a whole rabble of people at the back of the room now. I think that's a clear sign that we need to get to a wrap on this show, Chad. What are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for participating. And I just wanted to remind you that Mike and I do host a podcast, if you couldn't That's tell. Right. Uh, and you can find that at moonshots.io. We've profiled some really great entrepreneurs and innovators, unpacking as much as we can uh, from them to learn how we can take their uh, practices and apply them to our own lives. And I think today we've gotten some really amazing uh, takeaways uh, for me, I think that the biggest one was this idea about honesty and transparency. It seemed everyone uh, that we've spoken to yeah, has everyone has kind of got that. to that point. And it seems to me to be a very Dutch thing as yeah. well. Um, what Stephen was saying, how you know they'll tell you uh, how things really yeah. are. Yeah, I love that. So. What a fabulous way to kick off the night here. The night is only very young. Um, we're super thankful to all of you for being part of the Moonshots podcast. Which episode number are we at? Is this 14? 14. 14th episode. So we thank you very much. We want your thoughts, your comments, and your ideas. But in the true spirit of Amsterdam, the freedom of the night, it's Friday night. We're going to wrap up here for the Moonshots podcast. The DJ is cueing the vinyl, and we're ready to enjoy and celebrate something very special tonight. So, everybody, thank you very much for a thank great show. Thank you, Amsterdam. Amsterdam.